0: As was mentioned earlier, what a delight it is that God has blessed us with the privilege, yea, the honor of assembling this evening. As we come to this third Sunday in December, but one remaining Sunday in this calendar year, if it be the blessing of God, the 28th of the month next Sunday. And as we come to this particular lesson or this aspect tonight, as you know, we are drawing very near the conclusion of our reading through the Bible this calendar year. What we started back really on the first Sunday in January, it seems, has led us rather powerfully and amazingly throughout the fullness of the Bible. And now tonight, as well as next Sunday, we'll draw to a close all of those considerations. At this point, as you come with me to at least a few moments of reflection this evening on the 84th Psalm, that'll be the subject, or at least one of the psalms that we read this past week, and primarily the one that we shall be considering in somewhat more detail tonight. I trust that as we have made our way through the fullness of the Bible, perhaps chronologically it's been of benefit to us. It's been a matter that has been some helpfulness to us in many regards to tie it all together, maybe in the way that God would have us at least appreciate somewhat better. And all the while, I had rather. I chose that as the title because you may have noticed it really was a direct statement of three of the words taken from Psalm 84, verse number 10. I had rather. I hope tonight, as we think somewhat about I had rather, we'll put it into the place that we find it in that psalm and see if we can't use that as a great motivation, really an incentive for you and for me even today. Life is all about making choices, isn't it? In fact, it has often been said that the sum total of choices really makes that which you and I recognize as life. How many choices in any given day do you and I find ourselves making? Oh, it's true that there are somewhat minor choices, what we may choose for breakfast or what we may choose in terms of the ordering of the day, but then there are some rather acutely serious choices. Will I obey the gospel or not? Whom will I choose as a mate? What about the choice of a profession or a career? The sum total of all of those choices then makes that reality which you and I recognize as the, as the matter of, of course, our life. And yet we find in Psalm 84 an amazing reflection on the sum total of those choices. And it's stated in a very memorable way, isn't it? You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, Psalm 84, in light of the concept of choices, will be our primary subject this evening with it. I'd like to divide the lesson into two basic parts, if I might. First of all, a rehearsal of the brief psalm itself, reading it for that which the ancient writer put before us, and then devoting the majority of the latter part as simply an appreciation of some daily applications of it for you and for me. As we well begin, let's notice that the psalm divides itself in the following way. First, the first three verses... Let me read them, and as we listen, following that a few moments of elaboration on the thought and the topic that's before us. Psalm eighty-four, verses one, two, and three. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts? My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the sparrow Swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. It would appear from those three verses and the remainder of the psalm that follows that the psalmist on this occasion found himself separated from the tabernacle. It may well be that he was forced, due to the pressures of others, to leave, and so he was no longer near the temple. As such, he longed for it, he missed it. That temple was so vitally special to him that he so greatly desired to appreciate again with great yearning the ability to be near it. You and I well remember often in the Old Testament that the tabernacle and later the temple occupied such a central position in light of the people of God. You may in fact revisit briefly a few of the terms that the psalmist used in those first three verses. How amiable... The King James translation at least uses that as the second word in verse 1, amiable. Quite frankly, the word literally means lovely. How lovely are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! The psalmist with such fondness and with such a great degree of character recollected the days when he could be near that temple. He went on in verse number 2 and said, My soul longeth, yea, it even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. What he once had been able to enjoy on a much more regular basis, now it would appear that he was forcibly removed from it. And he so desperately wished again to be near that temple, near those courts of the Lord. I would ask you to notice, rather interestingly that verse 3 describes it like this. He makes mention of the sparrow as well as the swallow. Having found both nest and house, that temple was a place of solace, a place of security, a place of serenity, peacefulness, and tranquility, and he longed so desperately to be back there again. Well, that is a prelude to the remainder of the psalm. We're prepared at least for the next set of verses. After making statements like that. What do we find then in the next set of verses, verses four through seven of the 84th Psalm? Let me read that, and then we'll again elaborate somewhat briefly upon those verses as well. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee, Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them. Who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. What a tremendous blessing is pronounced as, though, as that set of verses begins, back to verse number 4, Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. The capability of dwelling in God's house and the blessing that comes along with it. The absolute and great privilege and honor that comes with it. And you'll notice the psalmist here so desperately longed again for it. He follows that up in the next verse. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee. Often you and I realize that David was the author of the Psalms. This one does not identify. Likely it was David. As you and I think about the life of David, you may recall there was a time when due to Saul chasing him, as we read in 1 Samuel, he in fact forcibly could no longer be near Jerusalem. We even remember later in his life, the scene surrounding the time when his son forcibly caused him to leave the city of Jerusalem. He could not then be near it. Could it be that this psalm was penned at least in an occasion like that? When he could, with such fondness, with such powerful memory, recollect the days of being near that temple, but no longer could it be, at least for a while. He recognized in verse 5, How blessed is that man who does have his strength in God! That does pose a question for all of us, doesn't it? Where do you and I find our strength? Is it ultimately, basically founded in the things of God, the faithfulness to His Word and the life that's lived upon it, or is it a life founded upon something else, anything else? You'll notice finally in the last two, verses 6 and 7, it says, "...who passing through the valley of Baca." You might wonder what Baca signifies, and if you're reading in another translation, maybe it even chooses a different word. That word literally means weeping. How often do, those, do you and I find ourselves passing through the valley that has tears within it? A valley that has weeping and that has a great deal of unpleasantness, inconvenience and soreness. The psalmist says that there is an amazing reservoir of strength available to those whose strength is in the Lord. He goes on to say in verse number 6 that those who pass through the valley of weeping Make it a place of springs. Isn't it interesting to turn crying, the tears that might flow from one's eyes down one's cheeks into a spring that flows forth with great refreshing power, and yet we find that the one whose strength is in the Lord will in fact be described like that. Might we notice verse 7 closes that little portion of the psalm by saying, They. Who's the they? These are the ones whose faith and whose trust is in God. They, he said, go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. You notice that there's that word Zion. He's remembering with such fondness. Zion remembers just the name of that hillside right near Jerusalem where the temple was built. The place that Second Chronicles chapter 3 identifies as Mount Moriah. Zion was the lovely citadel, the place wherein the strength of God was seen with what fondness he remembered and wished to return. It is with that in mind, might I ask you to notice, that place of strength only leads us to observe that which will close this psalm. Let's now read verses 8 through 12, finishing it, elaborating briefly upon it and then making some additional comments about the psalm as a whole. Verse number 8. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our God, O God our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield, the Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. Now, with that following what we've stated already, how neatly it packages itself together. Some comments along that line. The psalmist now begins with a very powerful petition. We've already observed how lovely and amiable are the tabernacles of the Lord, His desire to return to them, and now he petitions. Verse 8, hear my prayer, he says. And then verse 9, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed. The psalmist besought the pleasure and favorableness of God that he as well as Israel as a whole might look ever toward those pleasant tabernacles and recognize the great blessing and strength of God to be found therein. You can well tell with me that verse number 10 is such a sweet presentation. Sweet in the sense that it opens up the very matter of what life ought to be. Look again at the realization that he utters. A day in thy courts is better than a thousand. One day with the Lord in faithfulness is better than untold number in wickedness. That's a very interesting thought, isn't it? To ask yourself and for me to ask myself as well, comparing one to a thousand Would you and I then esteem one day with God better than a thousand in any other circumstance, no matter what it might be or where or with whom? We'll use that as a prompting guide for the latter part of the lesson. But for now, I had rather, verse 10, be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. You and I have frequently noted, haven't we, that in the very halls of heaven there will be degrees of reward. May I say, and I'm sure we'd each feel comparably, if I can just make it and obtain to the lowest station in heaven, I'll be entirely happy. And I'm sure you feel the same. I'll be happy to just be a doorkeeper as well as will you, I'm sure, throughout all the ages of eternity if I can be in heaven. That'll be enough. But comparing that to dwelling, no matter how much ease, how much wealth, how much prosperity, how much otherwise might be available, In the tents of wickedness, may we have the wisdom to always forego that wickedness, to always bypass it. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. The last two verses, verses eleven and twelve, explains yet again the greatness of what God offers. The Lord God is a sun and shield; He will give glory and grace. And he goes on to say, no good thing will he withhold from those that walk uprightly. And so the obvious question, do you and I walk uprightly daily in an ongoing and continuous fashion recognizing God won't withhold any good thing from us? And then in finality, verse number 12, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. Those words are so frequent in many ways. Didn't Jeremiah utter the same in Jeremiah 17, 7? Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord. And in fact, we find in indirect ways that those sentiments are so often found. As you and I close that slide then, appreciating what seems to be in a marvelous petition and an incredible personal reflection, Here's an individual, perhaps David, saying, I would be happy to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. What if you and I today ask about the application of that same thought? What would it mean on a daily, personal basis today? Maybe this next slide will begin to lead us in that direction. It does so as we, quite frankly, ask some very personal questions. And not only that, some very personal matters that we should carefully see if we can answer. Using this psalm as a prompting guide, I'd like to at least pose before all of us several questions using the words of the psalm as a guide. You and I noticed it in verse 1 a moment ago. The psalmist looked upon God's tabernacles with such loveliness, with such amiableness. Question, do you and do I look upon God's temple today with that same degree of loveliness. And we recognize that temple, of course, by the New Testament teaching. It's the church. Do you and I look upon the church with that same degree of ardent desire and fervent, fervency by which we, of course, would appreciate what is it God has made available? The psalmist so much adored that tabernacle in the sense that he wished he could return to it. Do you and I long for the church that way? Does the church excite us the same way it did Him? Does the characteristic attached to service, faithful at that to the Lord, seemingly remind us of what a great attitude should be within our heart? I would ask you to think about that one that follows it. The psalmist in these verses has so often mentioned, has he not, the nature of that fellowship he has now lost, distant from that temple. Do you and I treasure fellowship with the Lord? We often enjoy fellowship with others, husbands and wives and neighbors and fellow workers. Do you and I treasure above all others fellowship with God? The psalmist apparently did. Do you and do I? If not, there's an issue that should be resolved, and it should in fact be addressed rather quickly. I would ask you in light of that to notice Psalm 26, 8. O Lord, I have loved thy tabernacle and the place where thine honor dwelleth. The psalmist loved it. Do you and I love the church, her services, that for which she stands? Are we ardent defenders of all that is her truthfulness and her faithfulness? In Psalm 122, verse 1. A passage perhaps all of us have thought about so often. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go up into the house of the Lord. A degree of gladness filling the heart of the psalmist when the opportunity arose for the very opportunity to to appreciate going to the tabernacle in the temple. I might suggest in light of those things, the psalmist mentioned in verse 7 of this very place a very interesting thought. They go from strength to strength. Notice from one aspect of strength in life to another one. We noticed earlier as we discussed that in passing just a moment ago about the attribute of strength and where is it you and I find ours. I would ask, in light of that, that you would consider Psalm 27, verses 1 and following The Lord is my strength and my shield. He is a certain buckler to those that trust in Him. The strength of life. Isn't it true that we find even in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul commented something along that line. When he was buffeted so by that thorn in the flesh, that for which he prayed three times for its removal, in 2 Corinthians 12, God, of course, responded, I will not remove it, but nonetheless my strength is sufficient for thee to bear it. Paul, apparently was taught a rather amazing lesson of trust, reliance, and confidence in the Lord, and the psalmist echoed the same sentiment here. Maybe that leads us to another question. The security that we find in this psalm, remember the swallow and remember the sparrow of verse 3? Do you and I find that same security in Christianity? Sometimes we trust in our wallet Sometimes we trust our personal talents. We trust our memory. And all those are wonderful blessings, of course, but the most basic entity and that which makes them all possible and that which should be the guiding utility for all of them is, of course, God. Do you and I put our strength and reliance in Him? Do we find in Christianity the strength then to overwhelm and overcome the issues of life? The psalmist did. It is with that in mind that you'll notice the bottom. The psalmist petitioned to God twice in this set of verses. What about that petition you and I are able to utter? Do we forego too often the attribute of prayer? Or do we pray frequently, fervently, trustingly, and often? As often as the scriptures tell us that Jesus himself was a man of prayer, Mark 135. And as often as Paul himself was given to prayer, as we see in Ephesians 1, 18 and following, doesn't it remind us about how acutely important it would be for us as well? All of that is taught to us in one way or another in this psalm that's before us. Maybe in light of all those things, it takes us right back to verses 10, 11, and 12. As we transition to the next slide, may I ask you to think about With me briefly, some of the application to those same thoughts in the banner of this observation. I mentioned a moment ago that this psalm apparently was written by one who was forcibly removed from the temple. He no longer could be in the direct presence of it due to matters apparently beyond his control. I would like to ask you for just a moment, and me alike, to think, what would life be like without Jesus? I'm not asking now for if he had never come. I'm asking what if you personally and I had a different motivation, a different thoroughfare, a different set of choices in life, and you no longer had the Lord. I'd like to use again the psalm to ask you to ponder some of those things with me. And why don't we begin at the top. We're told very carefully in the scriptures that without the Lord, you and I can do nothing nothing worthwhile eternally, nothing of great value forevermore. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 to 9, we are given that very sad sentence upon those who will be forever removed from Him. To you who are troubled to rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. I'm sure that verse has stricken fear in all of us on many occasions to think about being forever removed from any association with Jesus whatsoever. It is that particular observation that takes you to the next one because isn't that the very sentiment in a way expressed here? Verse number 10, a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. One day versus a thousand. Consider the following. What would you choose? Suppose this choice were presented to you as well as to me. I realize up front you and I do not know the future and hence there would be no way for us in this flesh to be presented with this identically, but this is food for thought. If by some means you could know, would you trade one day a faithfulness to the Lord, living in harmony with His will, association and fellowship with the Master. Would you trade that for the money that Bill Gates has? Is it a trade I would make? Is it one you'd make? I had to look it up. I knew Bill Gates was a rich man. As of yesterday, I believe his wealth is now at $78.9 billion. That's with a B. Would you trade one day of faithfulness to the Lord for all that money? Something to think about, isn't it? I'm sure the devil would wish you and I to make the trade, but I would hope you and I, in earnestness, would forego it. If that decision were made, I would rather have one day in faith with the Lord than all of the money Bill Gates has. Something to think about, isn't it? If you and I could make the trade, what would you choose? You'll notice that this psalm not only leads us to consider that, but what was it the Lord said to even heighten that appreciation? In Mark 8, verses 36 and 37, Jesus, in the midst of that book, the gospel account according to Mark, we notice there He said, What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? He said on that occasion, even if a man were to gain the whole world and lose his own soul, he has come up on the short end of the bargain. We notice Bill Gates' money couldn't even earn one day in light of a faithful Christian. What about another consideration, again, based on the same psalm? Notice at the bottom, what would you choose? For many of us, as we grow older, we've come to appreciate very keenly the blessing of good health. We see it in our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents and others, the waning matter of years and what that so often brings to the fragility of the human body. What would you choose if you at this point could make the following choice? Would you choose to live faithfully to the Lord even in poor health? Or would you trade that in for living wickedly if you knew you could have 90 years of good health? Which would you choose? Something to think about, isn't it? I'm sure as often as you and I have visited hospitals, and we again have seen loved ones and friends and family and others who ultimately, due to the difficulty attached to health, we've seen them suffer. We've seen them undergo difficult matters to be sure. Would you and I trade it? If we knew we could have good health, would we be willing to live wickedly? Something to think about, isn't it? The psalmist again said, A day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. There at the bottom of that slide, I would ask us to recollect Paul's viewpoint toward this. By no means an insult in regard to good health. He said in 1 Timothy 4 verse number 8, Bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. He wouldn't by any means stating we shouldn't exercise or be active. But in terms of the ultimate value and importance, may we never overlook godliness. What about another question? If you and I could choose, so far, the wealth of Bill Gates, the character of, of long life, healthy life. What about another question? Which would you choose? Again, there are many times in which we often have reflected upon and thought about the length of life. We've seen those who, due to one reason or another, their life is seemingly taken so young. But on the other hand, maybe you and I have known those who live past the age of 100. Let us ask ourselves this question. Would you rather live faithfully for only a few years, or if you knew that you could live a long life, would you be willing to live it unfaithfully? Which would you choose? Which would I choose? I think you and I can well recollect there was a gentleman in the book of Genesis who lived almost a thousand years. His name was Methuselah. 969 years was the age of that man, as far as biblical record tells us, the oldest man that ever walked upon the earth. And yet, from all the appearances of Genesis chapters 5, 6, and 7, he died in the flood. Apparently, Methuselah was a wicked man. Question, would you be willing to, if you knew you could live near a thousand years, but in wickedness, would you be willing to make the trade? Would long life be good enough? The psalmist said, One day in thy courts is better than a thousand. It might well be, in light of all those things, you and I can appreciate yet another question. This one, about the middle of that slide. There are again so many, and you and I have noticed it hinted at even in the psalm, Psalm 84. There are some who clamor after influence and notoriety. For them, that truly, the fame that goes with it, is something of great value to them. Question. Would you rather die virtually unknown, that is to say, the world perhaps knows you very little, if at all? Or if you could trade it in, would you trade in that faithfulness if you could be known to the whole world but live unfaithfully? Which would you rather have, and which would I prefer? I believe we'd all be quick to say I'd much rather be faithful to the Lord and be known to nearly nobody if that's what it took to enter heaven. The Bible on this occasion asks us to perhaps think of it this way. I use Ben Franklin as an example. Known as one of the founding fathers of our country, and there are many ways in which he's looked up to with such respect, grandeur, and highness. After all, we even recollect his pictures on the $100 bill We understand so well he was one of the architects of that which came to be, the Constitution and this country that you and I consider with such fondness. However, all the reports seemingly suggest Ben Franklin wasn't the most moral of men. Question, would you rather have all the notoriety of Ben Franklin but die lost? And I'm not suggesting he died lost, but if that was involved, would you rather have his notoriety and die lost? or die saved and very few know your name. Something to think about, isn't it? The psalmist said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. It is with that that we come to two more questions. The problems of life. The psalmist, remember, was forcibly removed from the temple. He wasn't there anymore. Whatever that problem was was sufficiently serious that it brought him to these circumstances. But you and I have our problems, do we not? And sometimes they can be many, and sometimes they can be mighty. Question, if you knew that you could live with no problems in life, but die lost, would you make the trade? Knowing all the the while, if you remain faithful to the Lord, your life may well be encumbered with many problems and issues and difficulties. Which trade would you make? What would you and I choose? The psalmist begs us to recognize we must make a stand, and we must make our choice. In Job 14, 1, man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. There's no escaping that in this life, is there? Later we read in Psalm 90, verse number 10, the days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be four-score years yet, is their strength sorrow and labor? And we soon fly away. We realize that's the human lot in this flesh, isn't it? It might be then one final question is ours. And I thought we'd use Jesus Himself as a powerful guide to this one because it's so telling in so many ways. It's easy to look with some insignificance upon those temptations that Jesus faced. Turn these stones into bread. Cast yourself off the temple, for the angels will bear you up. Bow down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. We can read those verses so quickly, a matter of seconds. Think about the second one for just a moment. Cast yourself down. The angels will bear you up. Seems so innocent, doesn't it? Think about the third one. Just bow down and worship me. Everything will be yours. You and I also have exactly a parallel issue to face. The devil every day says, bow down and worship me. Follow envy, follow jealousy, follow selfishness, follow me. I'll give you anything you want. But of course, we must lose our soul if we do that. We trade in the very issue of Psalm 84 in order to follow the devil. Jesus, of course, said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Matthew 4, verse 10. No wonder in all these things, the lesson closes like this. Summary as the followed. The very last verse of Psalm 84 reads like this. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord. I'd rather not be Bill Gates if it means being lost. I'd rather not live 969 years if it means being lost. I would rather not have the notoriety and wealth of Ben Franklin if it means being lost. And I know you feel the same. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. One day in thy courts is better than a thousand. As we close this lesson tonight, the question comes to all of us. I hope we've been challenged and encouraged. I hope we've been reminded that every day these decisions and these choices are ours. It may well be the wealth of Bill Gates is not directly dangled before you and me, but many people will trade their soul for a lot less than $78 billion. Doesn't take much for some. I hope you and I in wisdom will feel just like the psalmist. One day in our courts better than a thousand. Rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of wickedness. This very night, what about your soul and what about mine? Are you a faithful Christian? Do you find God's temple, His church, amiable and lovely? If you aren't a member of it, you can't possibly feel that way. For if the church is that important to you, you will not want to wait another moment to be a faithful member in it. You enter only as the Lord adds you, Acts 2.47 and He adds you upon your obedience to those initial commandments of the Scriptures. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess Jesus' name as a Son of God and be baptized. If we could assist you in that, we'd be happy to do it. If you have been a faithful member of the Lord's church and His temple was amiable to you, but you no longer feel that way, why not come back to your first love, borrowing the language of Revelation 2.5? If we could help you in that way, we'd pray, just as the Bible tells us, and we'd beseech God on your behalf for forgiveness. Tonight, if we could be of help to anybody in that regard, don't wait another moment. Why not come so you too can enlist your name among the doorkeepers or better in the kingdom of the Lord. And if we could help you, why not come now as together we stand and while we sing.